Listener Production. Gidget Foundation Australia acknowledges the continuing connection to culture, lands, waterways and communities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And we pay our respects to traditional owners of country, both past and present, throughout Australia. This podcast contains conversations about suicide, loss, depression and anxiety that some listeners may find distressing. If you or anyone you know needs help, don't hesitate. Contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or emergency services on triple zero. I began to not sleep. That's when I would say my mental health started to plummet without me realising it. Triggered by severe mastitis and weeks on end without proper sleep, Jen's thoughts started to shift from anxiety over her newborn baby's health to something she'd only ever heard about in her work as a health professional. I began to experience a lot more paranoia. I was thinking that the lights were cameras with monitoring devices in them. It really took over from there. Postpartum psychosis is a mental health condition most only ever hear about in the media. And although rare, understanding the condition and its pre-indicators are vital in getting timely and appropriate care. It can happen to anyone, but you, you can grow from that experience and you, you sort of look at life differently. Pregnancy and the first year of parenthood is a time of major change in a person's life that without the right support can lead to or prolong perinatal depression and anxiety. For too long, these parents have suffered in silence, but that doesn't have to be where the story ends. Hi, I'm Davina Smith, and in this podcast, we tell the silent truth of PNDA loudly, and we meet some of the one in five mothers and one in 10 fathers who've lived through it. Ready to start talking. Hi, I'm Jen, and I'm one of the one in five mothers who have experienced perinatal mental illness. In today's episode, we'll be chatting about postpartum psychosis, with psychologist Dr. Erin Seto joining us a bit later to discuss what it looks like how to identify early warning signs and the steps to seek help. Jen, welcome. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am 40 years old now. Hey, it's 40. I'm 42. Uh, yes, yeah, Life right. begins at 40. Hey? <laughs> it does, it does. <laughs> I'm a mother of two beautiful boys, Archie, who is almost eight, wow. and Arlo, who has just turned three. And you have your partner, Liz. And I have a partner, Liz, yes. <laughs> She's got a bit important as well. <laughs> I have a beautiful partner who um, we've been together for around 12 years now. How did you meet? We met studying. So we both were doing a public health master's and met in Foundations 101. <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I guess from when you met Liz, were, were kids always in the spotlight? Probably not to begin with, but we did start to talk kids after a couple of years and whether that was something that we both wanted. And yeah, we decided that we each wanted to carry a child, which is the benefit, I guess, of being in a, in a same-sex female relationship. And we decided that Liz would actually carry our first child. I don't know what it would be like to watch your partner actually go through that, knowing that you will go through it as well one day. Was that hard to wrap your head around? 
It was, yeah. It's just a totally different experience, I think, watching someone go through it because you want to be able to help them through that pain and support them in the best way. And obviously then sort of thinking forward in a few years' time, am I going to be able to do that? You know, that anxiety around, well, I know thousands and millions of women have done this in the past, (laughs) but can I do that? I don't know. (laughs) So when did you make the decision that it was your turn? We left it a few years because I guess we probably hadn't realised how challenging it can be as well. The lack of sleep that you go through, I think, was probably the hardest thing for us to manage at the time. And I think in hindsight, we hadn't realised how difficult our eldest son was with his sleeping. We just thought that was normal because we hadn't been through it before. So we left it a couple of years and then we decided to try for a second probably three and a half years after. And what was that process like? Did it come easy? So we went through IVF for both our our kids. I had actually frozen my eggs when I was 32 at the time. We tried a cycle of IVF and that didn't work. And then I didn't have any more sort of eggs or embryos um, left. And so we did an IUI, which is essentially, I guess, a (laughs) turkey-baster approach in the clinic. And that worked first time, which was a bit of a shock to me because I was 37 at the time. So I wasn't really going into it thinking it would work. What a head spin. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. But obviously we were over the moon, super excited for what was to come. And what was the pregnancy like? I had a very smooth pregnancy. I didn't have any complications, essentially. It was during the summer of 2019 and 2020, that, which was the bushfires. Mm. And so I lived in Sydney and I did start to get quite worried about the impact of the smoke on our baby. I did speak to our obstetrician about that and he reassured us that it would be okay. It was quite a stressful period. You had a background in mental health. Were you conscious of your mental health at that point and and looking after yourself in that bubbling anxiety? I guess at the time I thought it was relatively okay to feel anxious about the smoke. I was thinking practically, I guess, about how can I protect ourselves. So I was staying indoors, in air conditioning, that kind of thing. I probably wasn't thinking about my mental health so much because I I had never experienced a mental illness before. So I guess I had gone into it thinking, despite my background and knowing the statistics, I thought, oh, look, I'm probably low risk. I'll be okay. What was the birth like? So it was interesting. Um, <laughs> you had this idea that you would have a month I, off I before did, yes. I would arrive. Yeah, so I thought that we would have some time to prepare, <laughs> but unfortunately that wasn't the case. So I caught the bus home from work, which was my the day before my last day of work. The next day we'd planned a farewell lunch with at my work. team at work. How lovely. Yeah, <laughs> and I caught the bus home, did our usual thing, We actually, I think, went out for ice cream with our eldest son, went to bed, and then my waters broke in the middle of the night. We were not prepared at all. (laughs) No no hospital bag packed. As you do, you're excited, you laugh about it, you call the parents to come around and and mind our eldest son, Mm. and we made our way to the hospital. So you're in labour while your colleagues are eating your lunch? (laughs) I actually (laughs) was giving birth when my colleagues sent a photo at my lunch. (laughs) So it was quite funny. <laughs> Did the birth go to plan though, apart from arriving a month early? Was... Yeah, look, it was, a, it was a really smooth birth. I had a, a good obstetrician and I was lucky that it went as best as possible, I think. It was not tra- a traumatic birth at all and he came out and was beautiful and healthy. So you had a couple of days in hospital and went home. When did things start seeming off track? 
Pretty much straight away after the birth, I started to experience pain in my breasts. And I guess you don't know what you don't know. I started to experience mastitis, which again, I knew was fairly common. So I didn't think much about it. I just put up with the pain. And so I kept trying to feed. So obviously Arlo was born a month early. So we were struggling to get that breastfeeding happening because he was he was actually a decent size still, but the feeding wasn't happening very yeah. well. But we kept pushing and we kept being, I guess, pressured to continue the breastfeeding despite it being pretty challenging. It was around three or four days after giving birth, I was discharged. The same day I actually presented to the emergency department that evening with mastitis. I was advised by the doctor that it was mild. And I remember saying to my partner, if this is mild, I can't imagine what severe mastitis is because I I was in agony. Mm. They put me on IV antibiotics and discharged me about 36 hours later. But I had an infection in my the ducts, the milk ducts, and it just took over my body about a week after giving birth. And how was your mental health at that point? I would say that I started to begin to experience a mania on reflection. So I was really intensely focusing on trying to get the breastfeeding happening and then pumping to get milk out and looking at the time of things and really intensely focusing on on that. I began to not sleep. So I ended up going probably around three three nights of really essentially not getting any sleep. That's when I would say my mental health started to plummet without me realising it. We weren't prepared for the birth, so we needed a breastfeeding chair. We thought we'll go to Ikea. Our eldest son loved to plane spot, you know, <laughs> which is <laughs> near the airport. Yep. So we, we watched some planes and, and as we were watching, my breast started to just be extremely painful. So I went to pump in the car park and came upstairs. And at this stage, it was January 2020, which was just before coronavirus was sort of a thing, I guess. It was ha- People occurring. were talking about People it, People were they? talking about it and the media was, but it was only in China at the mm. time. It wasn't in Australia at the time. But we walked up to the food hall in Ikea and I was convinced that there was coronavirus everywhere that the big giant Ikea teddy bear we bought for our son was covered in coronavirus. The table that we were going to eat off had coronavirus on us and I was saying to my partner, we, we've got to get out of here. I, I, I can't be here, we've got to go, we've got to go home. And what was Liz saying to you? What are you talking about? <laughs> what, like, she was sort of, she didn't, she didn't belittle me at all. She was like, okay, we'll get you home because she could see that I was physically unwell. And she just said, okay, let's let's go home. I can see that you're becoming distressed and we'll go from there. So this infection was taking hold of your body and you were almost becoming delusional in terms of what was going on around you. How quickly did things deteriorate? Very quickly. So I, we called my mum and she's an ED nurse by trade as well. So she came over to our place and took me to the hospital where I was triaged and... and eventually told that I was experiencing sepsis, which is a life-threatening sort Mm -hmm. of illness. And at the time, I then began to experience a lot more paranoia. So while in the ED, I was thinking that the lights were cameras with monitoring devices in them that were sending direct links to an old workplace of mine Mm -hmm. so that people could see me there. It really took over from there. 
I guess the paranoia and delusions shift over time. It's it's hard to describe what you're experiencing, but they did shift from sort of being paranoid that authorities are monitoring me to being in scientific experiments and, and doctors and nurses being involved in those experiments to thinking that the boys were also in those experiments and were robots and... And then it shifts again to almost grandiose ideas that I'm rich and famous and they just continually shift and your mind is just racing and you're very confused. Had you heard of postnatal psychosis before? I had heard of it. So having worked in the mental health sector for a while, I had heard of it but I'd never known anyone that had experienced it. So I guess I had a vague understanding of what it was like but, uh, or what it was about my understanding has shifted a lot. I think there's a lot of myths out there about postnatal psychosis because what you do tend to hear is often sensationalised or the stories in the media of really extreme, sort of situation. extreme situations. Yeah, I think one of the biggest myths is that people who experience postnatal psychosis want to harm their baby. That's what people think postnatal psychosis is, I think, sometimes. It's mothers wanting to protect their baby from what they're experiencing, from the delusions that they're experiencing. And I think not once did I ever have a thought of harming anyone. I was confused um, and perhaps not in a space that I could care for him. And so I think that's probably the biggest myth. That night in the ED became a long process for you. How long were you in hospital for? So I was in hospital for around six weeks all up. I spent time in three different hospitals. So the first was focused, I guess, on my physical health. So I was on antibiotic treatment for close to two weeks, I think it was. To deal um, with the sepsis. To deal with the sepsis and the infection. But it was during that period that my partner picked up on red flags, I guess. Jen's not her usual self. And requested a, a review by a psychiatrist. I'm lucky she's a mental health nurse. Mm. The psychiatrist, they obviously did a lot of, ran a lot of tests, MRIs of my brain, all kinds of things to figure out what was going on. Which wouldn't have helped with your paranoia, I'd imagine, at the time. Not at all. And that was, you know, I had a nurse monitoring me 24-7 by this stage. So I was actually sitting in my hospital room, making notes every 10 minutes on my actions. So while I thought I was being monitored, I really was being monitored. So it Everything, all your... fed the paranoia. It, it can feed it. And what you read in a magazine, what you see on the TV is speaking directly to you and it's, it, it becomes your reality. When you admit were admitted to the mental health ward, Arlo wasn't allowed to come with you, was he? Tell us about that. No, so he wasn't allowed with me in the general hospital either. And then, yeah, I was transferred to a, a mental health ward and he remained separated from me. To begin with... I guess I was so unwell, it was, I wasn't really, it's hard to say now, but I wasn't really thinking about him. But as I started to get better, I started to realise that I was, had been separated from him. That was really challenging because then you obviously have those fears of, well, when will I be with him again? When can I go home to my family? I had sort of been on the other side in a mental health ward but never been a patient in a mental health ward. And, and I could really experience the power and differences between as a patient within a, a mental health ward. And when they talk about 
so often about the importance of those first few days of bonding and, and yet you weren't allowed to be with him for weeks on end. How did that affect your relationship? Yeah, I, I worried about that a lot and I think the people around me worried about that. So my, my parents and, and obviously Liz worried about the impact it would have on our relationship. Everybody's sort of recovery journey is very different and it can take years for some people that experience psychosis. So there was definitely a lot of concern around what this meant for the family unit. Your healing process, you said, you know, gradually you started to get better. What was working and what, what helped in those, in those early weeks? What started to help was actually a, a really quite a frank conversation with, with a psychiatrist and Liz sort of separately, but me starting to talk about what was going on in my head. I was really quite scared and didn't want to tell anyone, but starting to open up and just say, actually, this is what I'm thinking, helped people to understand what I was going through. And that's when they started the medication as well. I was put on antipsychotics in quite a high dose. In hindsight, I assume that obviously helped me a lot. And then I guess it was my partner who has that experience as well and has nursed women who have experienced it before, was able to say to me and try and bring me back to reality just slowly. So would say to me, why don't you listen to some music knowing that, you know, I enjoyed music. Why don't you go and do your laundry? (laughs) Let's talk about how you might connect back in with, you know, a really close trusted friend. This sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was really small steps of trying to connect me back into reality. How did you feel about the idea of medication? I was scared. Yeah. I had never taken um, any kind of medication before for my mental health. I didn't quite understand at the time what they were giving me. At times they did give me medication to help me sleep. Because that's so important in the healing process. Exactly, exactly. And I was really struggling to sleep. And then I guess over time, I grew to really understand why people don't want to take medication or particularly antipsychotics. The side effects are pretty horrendous, to be honest. If the dose is slightly off, you can experience some sort of really awful side effects where they then give you a drug to offset those side effects you then can see how you can get into a pretty awful pattern. You put on weight and you lose your emotions. So it gave me actually a lot of motivation to try and practice other ways to try and get off the antipsychotics, to be honest. And yet when you had the infection in your body, there was no hesitation in taking the antibiotics, was there? No, and that's exactly right. And and now I realise how important those drugs were to kind of kickstart my recovery because... I don't know what would have happened if I didn't have them. Despite the side effects, I was then able to practice other methods of self-care, one of which was, you know, I've always enjoyed sports, so just going for walks when I could and listening to music, they were probably the two important ones for me. In this time, where was Arlo and Archie? So Archie, that year was his first year of preschool and Arlo was obviously at home, so Liz... It's hard for me to fathom what she went through. She had to stop work, essentially, use up all of her leave to care for the two kids. It's an isolating experience, I think, for a a partner or essentially a carer for me. She was thrown into a single parent position where I was unable to care for the boys. And as I said, this was January 2020. I was hospitalised across February was discharged in March and then COVID occurred and we went into lockdown. Great timing. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, our discharge planning was, so have you got toilet paper? And I thought, 
what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) So that was what I was discharged to. So you were discharged from a mental health ward to go into lockdown at home with two kids, with Liz going back to work. Yes. You must have been stoked to get home, but at the same time, dealing with a diagnosis like this and and just jumping straight into parenting two kids must have been challenging as well. It was a really tough time. I was still battling with a lot of internal stigma about this diagnosis. I was still experiencing some delusions, I would say, just not, I guess, as overtly. And I was still on the antipsychotics and yeah, Liz went, had to go back to work and we were all of a sudden in lockdown. So we had a really supportive preschool. So we were able to send our elders to school still. I had Arlo at home and I was being monitored and supported by a community mental health team and psychiatrist as well. Were you telling friends and family about your diagnosis at that point? I struggled at first, Mm. not knowing how to tell people. But over time, I actually found it was really helpful. I was always described by Liz as the rock of our little family, but to show that it can happen to anyone, honestly. So I think it became almost empowering to tell people. And you talk about these days about being recovered. How empowering is that? Yeah, look, I think three years down the track, it almost feels like it was a dream for me. So it feels like a separate experience. and, And I think that's such an important message for people is that you can be in such a challenging state or your mental health can be really struggling at times. It's a hard period having a newborn, but you can get out of it and you can look back and realise that there's this growth where, you know, I feel like I'm sort of a different person, to be honest. It's like a normal health condition where you've had an episode. Yeah. And you've got better because you've taken the right course of treatment. Yeah, exactly. And they talk about post-traumatic growth. I feel like what I've been through is is a pretty significant trauma as well, but you you can grow from that experience and you, you sort of look at life differently. And you're stronger because of it too. Absolutely. What's life like these days? It's chaotic, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're loving it. Like we have um, these two beautiful boys and we're just living life to the fullest, to be honest. And I hope one day they grow up and can hear these stories and and just be enriched by that so that they can support their partner if they choose to go down that path. And your relationship with Arlo, being separated in that period of time, how did you rebuild that and and find that connection? Obviously, lockdown, being alone with a baby kind of helps, but there would have been a degree of pressure that you'd put on yourself there. Yes, there was. There was, it was sort of the unknown for me of even just building that routine up that you that's you know is so important. I felt pressure externally as well because people around us were so worried about that bond that there needed to be that bond. And so it sort of did feel unnatural to begin with. And then I guess over time, I don't feel there's been an impact in the long term. I have just a greater relationship with him as I do with our eldest son. It just takes time. One of the the beautiful parts of your story is the involvement you had with RPA Hospital in Sydney to develop the parent and baby ward. So it's a a mental health ward where you can go to as a mum or a dad and you can take the baby with you so that you don't have to be separated. How important was that project for you? 
It's it's so important to be able to remain connected to your baby wherever possible. I did spend a couple of weeks in a parent and baby unit. That time was critical for me because it there was some beautiful staff who helped you connect and build your confidence to care for your baby when you have either not been there or when you felt like you haven't been able to. And so the RPA parent-baby unit is just critical for parents who need that extra sort of mental health support for the parent, but also build your confidence to be able to bond, spend time with your baby and learn to connect together. At my worst, when I was terribly ill, hospital was put on the card as an option and I refused to go because I didn't want to be separated from my baby. To give people that option that you don't have to be taken away from your child, that takes away that barrier for some people in their healing process, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that was my hugest fear. I was trying to do any, everything to not go to the ward without Arlo. And unfortunately, I was not well enough to go anywhere else. But I think having that as an option and having more parent-baby units, that's the first in New South Wales but it's, it's not okay that somebody in Dubbo, Wagga, Lismore has to travel to Sydney to go to that unit. They're separated from their community. To have more of those units is critical for all people who are starting the parental journey. And what's your relationship with the Gidget Foundation? So, look, the Gidget were actually on my plan um, when I was in the first hospital, actually. I was sort of we were chatting to the psychiatrist and the psychologist and they said, look, there's, there's Gidget House and that's an option for you. However, depending on how you go, there's also a mental health ward. And unfortunately, I wasn't well enough to go to Gidget. But I, I, I looked at the Gidget webpage while I was in hospital and I, and I read the Gidget Angel stories looking for stories similar to mine. And I found, I found one or two stories and, and they had a profound impact on me reading just somebody else's journey that seemed to be sort of what I was going to be experiencing. So I, I just thought, I think I need to get my story out there. You know, it's, it is different. And so I, I contacted Gidget with my story because I think it's also important that there are stories of same-sex couples or rainbow families that are out there because obviously there's another layer of isolation that can be experienced. And you've certainly been through that, so many different challenges, and yet you have these two beautiful boys and Liz. Yeah. You have so much to be proud of. Yeah, we, we I honestly feel so lucky now to be in a place where we are. It's actually probably strengthened my relationship with Liz. We have much more open conversations about our mental health that we took for granted before. Well, Jen, thank you. Thank you very much. We heard from Jen about the confusion her delusions caused, but also the growth she experienced as a person and as a mother in recovery. To talk about this further, psychologist Dr Erin Seto from the Gidget Foundation Australia joins me now. Erin, welcome. Tell us, what is postnatal psychosis? So postnatal psychosis impacts on approximately one in 1,000 births. For 50% of those women, it can often be the first episode. And it's kind of a really sudden onset and a rapid deterioration. And when we look at the symptoms, they generally present within the first two weeks post-birth, but they can be within 48 to 72 hours. And when we're looking at differentiating that from PNDA, it's really about the severity and the intensity of symptoms, but you're looking for sleep disruption Irritable mood, but an agitation with that often. Severe mood fluctuations or mood swings. 
a detachment from reality, confusion and hypervigilance towards things that are happening. Like Jen spoke about that hyper focus on really small, minute details. It can often appear with a manic episode as well, where there's just that rapid kind of behaviour. Speech becomes much more hurried and much more pressured. Thoughts are racing and it can have a hallucination factor. So that could be auditory, visual, it could be sensory or smell related. The thoughts and the delusions might not be destructive and that's what we always need to hold in mind. However, they do impair the woman's ability to make decisions and judgments and it's that that then becomes a bit more of a risk when it comes to taking care of herself and taking care of baby too. So it is a medical emergency and it does require immediate hospitalisation and really what we know is that the earlier the intervention the better the outcomes are for both mum and baby. I guess the more challenging stories that we do hear in the media are around where something has happened as a result of a mum trying to protect her children and I think we do always have to keep that in mind but I think Having postnatal psychosis doesn't stop you being from being a really good mum. And I think that's always really important to remember. It doesn't mean that you can't look after your baby. It just means that for a short period of time, you need a bit of support to do that. It can be quite severe. And I guess we associate this condition with mental health illness. And yet we heard from Jen, she had no history of that, did mm-hmm. she? No, and it can come out of the blue for some people. Like I said, 50% is a is the first episode. I think there are risk factors with that. If you have a family history of postnatal psychosis or psychosis in general, then it can heighten your risks. I think if you've got a diagnosis of bipolar, you can be at more risk. But yeah, you can also be someone who's never had any experience of mental health issues at all. So it can be a really kind of abrupt change to life for you. And it can present in in a lot of different forms, even though it Mm -hmm. it tends to be in those first two weeks. Mm -hmm. Many people have very different experiences. Yeah, and that can be one of the things that makes it really hard to diagnose. I think Jen spoke about the idea of the delusions being about people monitoring her, but then she was being monitored. So that ability to draw the line of where is reality not quite sitting right anymore can be really difficult and I think particularly with new mums don't assume that she's fine because it may not always present typically and psychotic symptoms need that urgent attention but women will often try and cover the distress so they're so fearful as Jen spoke about of losing their child or having their child taken away from them they will do anything they can to cover some of the symptoms that they're experiencing whilst living with that intense fear. We don't really know why psychosis happens yet. There's not really a really clear, solid evidence base of it, but we know that sleep plays a major role in it. We know that hormone changes, particularly during the pregnancy and post-birth hormones, fluctuate significantly, so they can feed into it as well. And I guess the genetic and immunology factors as well, they're doing a lot more research into their role. She spoke about how important it was for a partner Mm. to see all these red flags because in her mind, this was all justified and all normal, but it was a set of eyes outside her mind that could see Mm. that this wasn't right. That's so important, isn't it? It is, because I think many women experience intrusive thoughts post-birth, and that can be a key feature of postnatal anxiety. And so it's about being able to distinguish what is intrusive thoughts that are causing distress, but you know that they're not real, that they are just thoughts, versus that really losing touch with reality, which is the key feature of psychosis. So it's about asking the right questions at the right time. And I don't think that socially or culturally we are well-versed at knowing what those questions are and how to ask and what actions to take should it happen. 
I guess in terms of key questions, what we're looking at are, is the person talking or acting in a strange way? Are they more withdrawn than normal? Are they speaking more rapidly? How is their sleep and what's changing? Has there been any hint that they are hearing or seeing things or experiencing sensations that just don't seem normal in that sense or out of character? Are they suspicious of others or expressing concerns that others are trying to get her or harm her or the baby? particularly that sleep, but also are they exhibiting a high degree of confidence or an exaggerated sense of their capacity? I mean, we spoke to Jen and she mentioned that idea of thinking she was amazing and that she was... Celebrity almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think starting to look at those sorts of ideas become really important as well. And are they abnormally hyperactive? So are they bouncing around? Are they racing thoughts like she was talking about? They're just the Googling and the micromanaging of everything related to breastfeeding. The hard part is distinguishing that between someone who is highly anxious and doing some of those behaviours, but we're really questioning where it's starting to lose touch with reality or being really out of character is important. That's a big responsibility for a partner and you can understand there'd be a degree of fear in their Mm. mind having to put their hand up and say, I don't think something's right here. How can you reassure a partner that what you're doing is the right thing, that you will be okay, that your partner will be okay Mm -hmm. and that Bub will be okay too. I always go back to risk when it comes to postnatal psychosis and I think it's never too early to just ask the question. And checking with a GP or checking with a specialist that's across these sorts of areas, you can never do wrong by asking the question and if it turns out to be nothing, then that's okay, you can move on. But if it turns out to be something, then you asked. So that's really key. But I would say... It's really important for the carer to also, and partner, to also take care and look after themselves. Because if you're entering into this journey of care, like Liz was, you need to then be across medical treatment, know what the medications are for, know the medication regime, for example, so that if someone stops taking it, you can monitor symptom onset again and whether there's a relapse. I think what's so important is reminding yourselves that you were a couple first as well before this illness existed. And so making sure that you spend time just chatting about everyday stuff. I also think it's really important that they look after themselves as the partner eating and sleeping and finding time for to manage their own stress levels because it's absolutely going to have increased during this process. It might feel selfish or that you don't have time, but find any support you can to make sure that you are looking after yourself. In particular, just educating yourselves about the diagnosis and about the risks and what that means, I think can be hugely helpful in your role as a carer advocating for your partner's needs. It's no different to asthma or diabetes or, God Mm. forbid, cancer. It's a very serious diagnosis, but we shouldn't have any judgment attached to that. No, not at all. It's not anything that Jen could have controlled. She couldn't have stopped it from happening. I mean, maybe the sepsis played a role in it, but there's so many other factors that would have built into her potentially still going down the same path. I think that what's really important is we empower women by talking about it beforehand, particularly if you're someone who has heightened risk factors like a family history. Doing a bit of planning around that, sharing information with partners so that they know what to look out for. Also, I think that there is a huge amount of healing to be done within community. And I think as we start to share where we are at, people can start to look out for us. People can start to help us out and offer support. And I think it becomes hugely isolating when we're trying to hide things for people because it just becomes so hard to hide that you withdraw. So I think the more that we can share, the more community can help us recover. And that's really important. 
Jen spoke about her relationship with medication and her approach to that. And I guess that's something that really hit home to me. There's a reluctance almost to take medication in these circumstances, particularly when there are side effects, whether it's just something as simple as gaining weight or mm. something more severe. But it doesn't have to be forever, does it? No. And I think that's something that's really important for us to address because there is a misunderstanding that once you start taking the medication, you can never come off it again. And that's not true. I think it's really important to identify that a lot of mental health medications do have withdrawal symptoms. So the medication with reduction needs to be managed properly. I think people can do that very successfully and that should be part of the treatment plan. I guess one of the stumbling blocks with medication as well is you're worried you can't breastfeed your baby. How do you address that? Yeah, I think that's a really tough one. And I think that is something there's so much information out there about breastfeeding and about how that's the gold standard. And I think when you're going through some period of real challenge, it's about doing those basic things that makes you feel like you're managing this. And so breastfeeding can be something that women really hold on to, even when they're very unwell. And I think it is a real challenge when it comes to postnatal psychosis, because the first line of treatment is often medication and that can make breastfeeding really difficult to continue. Even just the fact that you're sleeping a lot more, you know, keeping that regular routine of what the baby's needs. I think it's always a discussion that should be had with your treating team. And if it's something that's really important, then we should look at what options there are to support you to continue that. But I do think that there are other ways of being a fantastic mother. And if that one option is not an option for you, then maybe there's another thing that we can do to help maintain that bond. Even just in terms of skin to skin can be so important for babies and their developmental milestones. So if you can't breastfeed, can you just do skin to skin every couple of hours to just continue that bond? What sort of treatment options are available then when we talk about postnatal psychosis? So the first line of treatment is generally always medication. And that medication targets two things. So it targets the symptoms of psychosis, but it also targets sleep. And what we can see is improvement quite quickly once both of those factors have been addressed. That recovery journey is always longer. I think, like Jen said, I would really advocate for where possible uh, that mum and baby unit approach so that the parenting continues alongside and that building that confidence again in parenting when you've been through something as big as postnatal psychosis. I would argue that postnatal psychosis, just having that diagnosis and that experience is traumatic in itself regardless of the experience of then what happened while you were experiencing postnatal psychosis. What Jen said with people and their approach to you will often change. How you see yourself, your confidence in yourself, your level of vulnerability that you might now feel because you've had such an extreme and intense experience, particularly if you've never had any mental health issues before, that can be really, really challenging for people to overcome. But I think Jen's message around post-traumatic growth is so important. Like we learn our capacity, we learn about who we are, we learn about how to take care of ourselves and how we see ourselves and how we function within the world and what meaning the world holds for us now. All of that shifts and it can have a really positive outcome. And you look at Jane, her eyes light up when she talks about Arlo. There's, there's, there's no damage to that bond there whatsoever, is there? Yeah, there really isn't. And I think that that's really important to talk about and highlight as well. Like, You may have had postnatal psychosis, it's huge, it is life-altering, but at the same time there is a message of hope at the end of that and I think Jen really beautifully sums that up. Erin, thank you. You're welcome. This podcast is a listener production made in partnership with Gidget Foundation Australia. 
Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production from Kelly Falston. Listener.